of Machen's life. Let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, thank you so much for this time for us to meet together this morning. Lord, we thank you uh, that this is the Lord's day, and we thank you that you set our times and that you have set this day apart that we might worship you, that we might rest from our ordinary labors, uh, and that we might give a service and worship to you. Lord, uh, help us today uh, as we seek to learn more about this, your servant Machen, and that it would stir us up uh, to be more passionate about the gospel. Uh, to be uh, committed to being stronger defenders of the faith, to being those who are ready to contend uh, against the lies of the world that uh, seek to compete with the truth of the gospel or seek to confuse it. Uh, Lord, help us to think more clearly about the glorious word that you've delivered to us. Uh, Lord, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, Parks taught us last week about uh, the first part of Machen's life, and if you missed that last week, you should really uh, go back, look on YouTube, and find Parks's teaching uh, about the first part of Machen's life. Uh, we're going to talk about the last 17 years of Machen's life, and this is where we really get into the controversy that he faced head-on, the fundamentalist, modernist controversy uh, as this period in Presbyterian church history is called. But I want to remind you before we jump in that next week, the long-awaited, we're actually going to start talking about the book. So we've had all this great buildup where you've learned about the theological conflicts and, uh, and what was in the stream of thinking uh, for these people uh, that led to the need for a book like Christianity and Liberalism. Well, next week, we're actually going to start talking about it. And so this week, read the introduction, which is the very first chapter uh, and we'll talk about that next week. And bring your book when you come so that you can follow along with page numbers and all of that. So before we get into where we are at Machen's life, and we're going to pick up right as Machen gets back from serving in World War I. You remember that he was close to the front line serving hot chocolate uh, to the soldiers there and ministering to them, hosting Bible studies. I want to remind you of something that happened in uh, 1910. Uh, something that the Presbyterian General Assembly uh, approved. It was called the five-point deliverance. And it was something that the Presbyterian Church wanted all of their candidates for ordination, those men who would be pastors in the denomination, they wanted them to affirm these five things. The inerrancy of Scripture, and I know it's you can kind of see it up there, the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was being your substitute. The literal second coming of Christ. So the second coming of Christ is not something like the second time Jesus comes is the time that he comes into your heart. There's a literal Jesus is coming uh, to, uh, to bring about an end of, the end of history to judge the living and the dead. And then fifth, the miracles of Christ as recorded in Scripture. Uh, these weren't uh, fantastic things that disciples added later to, to uh, say more about Jesus, uh, to add something to the moral teaching that he was giving. No, these the miracles as reported in Scripture really happened. And so the Presbyterian Church in 1910, they wanted their candidates for ordination to affirm these five things. This is important because in 1927, the Presbyterian Church is actually going to rescind these. They're going to say that our candidates no longer have to affirm these things to be pastors in our denomination. Uh, well, in 1919, Machen gets back from World War I and starts teaching again at Princeton Seminary. 
Uh, and in 1921, he publishes his first book, The Origin of Paul's Religion. Uh, this is Machen's answer to liberalism. Liberalism is, is trying to figure out, okay, what, what is the substance of Paul's religion? Where did he get these ideas from? Because their thinking is that Jesus was a strong moral teacher, but he wasn't God. And so where did Paul kind of develop these ideas for his religion that are set forth for us in his letters in the New Testament? Well, Machen's answer for that is very scholarly and brilliantly done, but it's also very simple. Where did Paul's religion come from? Well, it came from Jesus, people. That was, Paul, that was Machen's answer. Uh, and this is a quote from this book. He loved me and gave himself for me. There lies the basis of the religion of Paul, and there lies the basis of Christianity. Machen didn't have any time for people who were guessing about and theorizing about where did Paul get these fantastic ideas from. It's plain where Paul got these ideas from, from his Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, Machen saw that all this theorizing, all, this, uh, all, all these people trying to square the scriptures with modern ideas uh, that, that, that didn't, uh, uh, people trying to square these ideas with modern uh, ideas so that uh, people in this day were starting to reject the idea of miracles. They wanted a, a faith that didn't rely on supernaturalism. And Paul said, uh, Machen says, you can't have it. Uh, if you get rid of a supernatural religion, you've gotten rid of Christianity. Uh, th this is not something that's worth just theorizing about and kicking around. Uh, we have to take the revelation of God for what it is, his very word to us. And so uh, Machen uh, publishes The Origin of Paul's Religion, 1921. Well, in that same year, uh, his friend, his colleague at Princeton Seminary, his mentor in so many ways, B.B. Warfield, dies. Uh, Parks talked really compellingly about B.B. Warfield uh, last week. He was someone who preached and wrote with conviction. He, he taught future ministers of the gospel. And he was also a, a model of godly piety. Uh, you remember that he would wheel his uh, infirm wife around campus so that she could get to see people. He was a, he was a wonderful model of humility and piety. Uh, and he passed away in 1921 and went to be with the Lord. Now, later... Machen is going to say that when they carried Warfield's casket out, that old Princeton went with him. He might not have seen it quite as clearly at the time that it happened, but this really begins the decline of the seminary that Machen is teaching at. Uh, it, it begins to go more and more toward liberalism, toward modernism, away from the clear teaching of Scripture, and more and more trying to square the teachings of Scripture with modern ideas. And so the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy uh, really, uh, really explodes when this man, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, a Baptist preacher, preaches at the First Presbyterian Church in New York. He preaches the sermon on May 21st, 1922, called Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And he's really promoting tolerance. Uh, he uses the word tolerance or tolerate uh, almost 20 times in this sermon that he preaches. Uh, he, he sees the, the con, who he calls the conservatives, the fundamentalists, people that are really concerned about what the Bible plainly says and teaches. And he's very frustrated that they are not tolerating people who want to call themselves Christians but don't believe the basics of the Scriptures. And so... Uh, 
Fosdick urges tolerance, but for the tolerance guy, shall the fundamentalist win is a pretty antagonistic title. And it's a pretty antagonistic sermon. So a few quotes from his sermon. He starts out by saying, this morning, we're to think of the fundamentalist controversy which threatens to divide the American churches as though already they were not sufficiently split and riven. So you, you see what Fosdick's doing in the first sentence. He's trying to he's trying to paint those who are holding to the scriptures as the troublemakers, the ones who are calling prob- the ones who are causing problems. If you guys would just calm down and let people believe what they want to believe then there wouldn't be a problem anymore. He says the fundamentalist program is essentially illiberal and and intolerant. And then this is how he paints the the state of things in the modern world uh, in, in the 1920s. He says man has come into the possession of new knowledge. He's essentially saying, I know that you, that Christians have believed the Bible for a long time, but look, we're in a new day. People are thinking in a different ways. And one of the things that he appeals to a lot in this sermon is if we don't compromise, if we don't concede, compromise isn't his word that he uses, but essentially this is what he's advocating. He says, if we don't do this, we're going to lose the young people. We're going to lose the seekers. People are going to check out unless we start. And and what he's advocating for is not to winsomely talk and defend the faith, talk about the faith and defend the faith. What he's talking about is just giving up the faith so that we can gain as many people as possible. He says, we've come into the possession of new knowledge. Modernists have been trying to see this new knowledge in terms of the Christian faith. Now, if you stop the sentence there, that's okay. The the landscape of the world, the, the way people are thinking seems to be different. And we want to think about this in a Christian way. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. And he says, we need to see the Christian faith in terms of the new knowledge. And so which one is the sovereign? Which one is the steady place to stand? Well, now it's, it's, uh, it's not. Scripture is the solid ground on which we stand. And we're going to evaluate everything else through a biblical lens. It's now, well, we have to evaluate the Bible through this new modern lens. And so he continues, we must be able to think our modern life clear through in Christian terms, which again, if he stopped there, that would probably be okay. But to do this, we also must be able to think our Christian faith clear through in modern terms. And he says, whenever such a situation has arisen, there has always been only one way out. The new knowledge and the old faith had to be blended in new combination. I don't know what... Uh, situation in the past he's talking about where this has worked out, it doesn't work out to do this. It just compromises and uh, destroys the faith of those who do this kind of thing. Uh, he ends, and maybe you think, okay, what, what he has in mind, what Fosdick has in mind, the things that he says that Christians are, care- that, that these Bible-believing Christians are, are too concerned about, maybe they're these small matters, these kind of uh, nitpicky doctrines that people might uh, be schismatic over. Well, these are the kinds of doctrines he's talking about. The fundamentalists insist that we must believe in the historicity of certain special miracles, preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord, and a special theory of inspiration so that the Bible, uh, everywhere that it speaks, is true, and then a special theory of the atonement, that the blood of our Lord shed in the substitutionary death 
placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner. And so uh, you hear how uh, derisively he's talking about the atonement, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's saying that uh, the fundamentalists are making too big a deal out of these doctrines. It's hard to imagine how you can make too big of a deal out of these doctrines. To, to deny the virgin birth of our Lord is to deny that Jesus is God and man. It's to make him only an ordinary human. Uh, but, but that is what the, the liberals, the modernists in this day wanted to do. They wanted to say that Jesus was only a human, only a great moral teacher and, uh, and, and had a, a great God consciousness and that he was not God himself. And you, so you see what, uh, what Fosdick is talking about is a total denial of Christianity itself. And so here you might think of Galatians chapter 1 where Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who has called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's important here that we recognize that what, what Fosdick is expressing is not a different version of Christianity. It is a total rejection of Christianity. It's a different gospel altogether. Galatians 1.7 says, Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Uh, Paul's analysis of, of Fosdick would be that he is troubling and confusing believers. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a different gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And this is the question in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If, you're trying to ple if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And what you'll see in so much of this rhetoric around the, the modernist agenda, the, the liberal agenda in this day of, of thinking, was this desire to please man so that it might grow the church, so that people could come into the church and call themselves Christians no matter what they believe about Christ himself. Uh, it, it, it really comes down to Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's Paul's confession. Uh, what, what are other people's confession? Will we be ashamed of the gospel? Well, there are several responses to uh, Fosdick's sermon. It's very popular. And there are a lot of people that like it, but there are some who... Uh, don't. There are some who object. Uh, there's this man, Clarence McCartney, and he, I think, sets it very well. He preaches a sermon, uh, and he writes this in response to Fosdick, and he calls his sermon, Shall Unbelief Win? He sees it very clearly. It's not a different version of Christianity. It's what Fosdick was expressing was unbelief. Uh, well, and then the great book-long treatment of this is the book that we're studying, is Christianity and Liberalism. And Machen We've, we're going to have a lot of time to talk about uh, this book beginning next week. But Machen's not explicitly dealing with Fosdick. He's dealing with the thinking uh, that Fosdick's sermon comes out of. And so Machen has this very thorough, very clear approach uh, and, and a wonderful response to all of this. But just so you see more of what Machen is dealing with in his, in his day and then as his life goes on, uh, this doesn't get any better. 
1924, at least for the Presbyterian Church. In 1924, there are a group of Presbyterian elders that get together. They meet in Auburn, New York, and they write what's called the Auburn Affirmation. And the original text of this has 150 elders who signed it. The, the next printing of it later that year had 1,274 signers. And so this was a very popular document. And these are the kinds of things it said. It said, this opinion of the General Assembly, and what they're talking about was that five points deliverance that I showed you at the beginning, those five points that really uh, preachers of the gospel need to agree on if they're going to be pastors, if they're going to be proclaiming what the word says. In the Auburn Affirmation, they said that the opinion of this General Assembly attempts to commit our church to certain theories concerning the inspiration of the Bible and the incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection. So you see what they're doing. They're saying these ideas about Christ being born of a virgin, Lord Jesus uh, suffering, dying on the cross in our place, and this being the only way of salvation for us, those are acceptable theories that someone can have. But there are other theories that you could have about Christ, his person, and work. And so they're saying some of us regard these particular theories contained in the deliverances of the General Assembly in 1923 as satisfactory explanations of these facts and doctrines. They're, they're trying to say that there are other ways to be Christian. You can still call yourself a Christian and not believe in Christ uh, as he has told us about himself in the scriptures, as he's revealed himself. Uh, they say, but we are united in believing that these are not the only theories allowed by the scriptures and our standards as explanations of these facts and doctrines of our religion, and that all who hold to these facts and doctrines, whatever theories they may employ to explain them, are worthy of all confidence and fellowship. And so what they're saying is not that as the church, that we believe the gospel and we want to minister to other people. We want to evangelize. We want to reach out to other people who do not believe the gospel so that the Lord might use the, the preaching of his word and the sharing of the gospel to convert sinners. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that the church doors should be open wide to anyone who calls themselves a Christian, even if they don't believe that Jesus is God. That, uh, that his life and death and resurrection are the only way of salvation. They are trying to redefine Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's saying that those, those original statements, those, that's one theory, that's one view that somebody can have. But the scriptures and the Westminster standards would be fine with us taking another view of the gospel to say that Jesus is merely a man. So if you're confused by this, it's because it doesn't make sense. It really, the, their, their logic is that you can believe what you want and call yourself a Christian. And that's fine. That what you say about yourself, they're saying, look, those, those, five, those five important fundamental statements, that's your truth. But someone else might have a different truth than you 
and the church should have enough room for all of us. And if the church can't have room for everybody's truth, then the church is fundamentally intolerant. That's what they're teaching. And it sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Machen stands strong against this whole idea. Uh, and because the scriptures do, the, the 2 Corinthians 6, they do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness. And we often uh, uh, tell, pe- tell young people who are dating to think about this uh, when, in, when choosing a mate, but, uh, and, and it certainly applies to that, but also within the church. Uh, do we call ourselves, uh, can you call yourself a Christian when you reject what the scriptures say? Well, Machen, the question is, what is Machen doing while all this is going on in the world? Well, he is preaching and he's publishing. So he publishes his follow-up to uh, Christianity and liberalism, which is called What is Faith? And then he's preaching. He's the stated supply at First Presbyterian Church in Princeton, and he's teaching at the seminary. He's equipping future ministers to stand strong for the gospel uh, in this hostile age when people hate these ideas. And Machen is speaking everywhere uh, he gets a chance. Uh, it, it seems like he does not turn down an invitation to speak. He speaks at colleges. He speaks at Bible schools. Uh, he speaks at presbytery meetings, at conferences. He speaks at uh, women's gatherings. Uh, he even teaches a 16-week course at the YMCA on the basics of the Christian life. So Machen's not stuck in his ivory tower. Uh, he's going out proclaiming the gospel wherever he can. But Machen is going to get pushed into uh, the limelight. He's already been in the newspapers quite a bit, but he's really going to get pushed there uh, while he's preaching uh, at First Presbyterian Church in Princeton by this guy. So uh, famous uh, American poet, novelist, Henry Van Dyke, is a member of First Presbyterian Church Princeton. And he hears Machen's preaching, and Henry Van Dyke is much more in line with the modernists and the liberals. And this is what he writes about Machen. He writes to the letters of the church, The few Sundays I have free are too precious. This is his opinion of himself are too precious to be wasted in listening to such a dismal, bilious travesty of the gospel. That's what he calls Machen's preaching. And if you've read any of Christianity and liberalism so far, do you get the impression from Machen that he preaches a dismal travesty of the gospel? No, what Machen is doing that Van Dyke finds so appalling is he's clearly presenting what the scriptures teach. And Van Dyke doesn't want anything to do with it. So he writes this letter to the elders of that church, but then he also writes this same letter to the New York Times and calls out Machen by name. And so Machen is put in the spotlight for this. And and this makes front page news in some cities uh, in the United States. Well, in order to avoid continued controversy for the church, Machen steps down from being the stated supply Uh, at that church. He wasn't the pastor. He was stated supply, and so that means that he was coming uh, and preaching uh, every Lord's Day. But Machen uh, steps down from that post. But one of the themes in Machen's life that you'll pick up on is that you can't cancel Machen. Because anywhere that he stops doing one thing, he's going to find a place to do it somewhere else. And so Machen goes on 
uh, he, he kicks the, the, the dust off of his feet, so to speak, um, from preaching there. And he preaches uh, in St. Louis, in Chicago. He preaches to churches in Canada. Uh, he is constantly preaching and teaching the gospel. Well, in the Presbyterian world, uh, it seems like Machen's ideas are not the prevalent one. Uh, the, the modernist ideas are taking root more and more in the Presbyterian church. And I want you to notice how. So this man, a colleague of Machen's, Charles Erdman, becomes the moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. And we're going to get into Presbyterian politics just a little bit, but pay attention and I, you'll, you'll find this interesting. So Erdman is a moderate. He, he wants to be a peacekeeper. He's not real hard on the conservative side. He's not real hard on the, on the liberal um, uh, modernist side. But what Erdman wants to do is to make peace. And so he thinks the way to do that is by looking at the general assembly, looking at their denomination as a whole and saying, okay, we've got all these committees. What we need to do is have equal representation. And so on these committees for the work of our broader church, I want to put on people who are conservative fundamentalists, but I also want to put in those committees uh, people who are liberal, uh, people who are modernists, and then we'll put some moderate, some people who are in the middle. Here's the thing about people who are in the middle, though. A lot of times what they want to do is they want to keep peace. Well, so which side is promoting that they are the peacekeepers? And which side is the one that's having to make a firm stand? and who are easily portrayed uh, as, the, as the ones who are causing trouble and causing problems. Uh, well, it's the, it's, it's the fundamentalists, it's the biblical conservatives uh, who are in that camp uh, and who are easily portrayed as the troublemakers. And then it's the liberals, the modernists, who are portraying themselves as the tolerant ones. And so the people who are in the middle reliably go the direction of the liberals. And that changes everything for the denomination. In the 1926 General Assembly, the following year, Machen, in his own seminary in Princeton, was appointed the chair of apologetics. It's, it's a huge honor for him. It's a promotion for him. And it's a recognition from uh, those at the seminary that Machen is a powerful voice in preaching the gospel. Apologetics is defending the faith. When we talk about an apologist, uh, someone who makes apologetics they are someone who's skilled in defending the faith and saying what the scriptures teach and making a compelling case for the world. And so Princeton Seminary recognizes that Machen's the guy to do this. He's well-loved by the students. And so, but because this is the, the Presbyterian Church's seminary, uh, that the approval for that promotion has to go through the General Assembly, has to go through the, the, the major meeting uh, that year of the Presbyterian Church. Well, the General Assembly decides to table this motion, which just means that they're not going to talk about it that year. But everybody sees this for what it is. They were effectively denying Machen uh, this promotion to the chair of apologetics. It was essentially a power play on their part to say the, the denomination as a whole, we don't like this guy. We view him as a troublemaker and we don't want him to get ahead. We don't want him to get a louder voice at all. And, and a lot of people saw it this way. And so letters of support start pouring into Machen 
They're really wonderful. They're encouraging to read. Former students, uh, people that have benefited from his books, uh, who have seen how uh, the, the great impact that he made on their lives. But Machen also got a lot of hate mail. Uh, one in particular stands out. Uh, they, they addressed it to him, to the professor of bigotry. That's, that's how they viewed Machen, as the intolerant one. Uh, well, this is a, the, the, the cover of this book. This is a book by Bradley Longfield called The Presbyterian Controversy. And, and he really does a great job outlining this, the, this contrast between the fundamentalists, the, the modernists, and then the moderates, uh, who, the, those who were kind of squishy in the middle, who really served to tilt the balance uh, toward the, the modernist case. Uh, the picture on the front of that book is from the 1927 General Assembly. And that's the assembly where the, the, the Presbyterian Church finally says, look, we're going to rescind the five-point deliverance, uh, those five points that uh, students, uh, that, that uh, candidates for ordination were supposed to affirm in order to be ministers in the church. They rescind that, pulling that back. Uh, you no longer have to believe those things in order to serve uh, as a minister in the Presbyterian church. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. People, people knew him well. Yeah, yeah. And he'd been, he'd been in the limelight uh, a lot. And so they knew who he was and I think saw the threat that he was and so didn't want him to rise up uh, in this position, I think, for that reason. Well, in 1929... Uh, and this, again, this seems like a, a mundane political move, but Princeton, the seminary, gets reorganized. The General Assembly approves this reorganization. And what they did, there were two different boards that governed Princeton Seminary. There was a board of directors, and then there was a board of trustees. And the Presbyterian, uh, the, the, the Presbyterian Church at the General Assembly said, let's just combine these two boards. And it seems mundane enough, but the Board of Directors was mostly made up of conservatives, while the Board of Trustees was mostly uh, moderates and theological liberals. So again, what did that effectively do? It shifted, uh, it shifted the way that Princeton was going, and it effectively sealed Princeton's fate to being a liberal, modernist institution. And so Machen saw the writing on the wall and... Uh, and and got out of there, and he brought the faculty, and he brought uh, several people from the faculty with him. And because you can't cancel Machen, if he leaves one place, he's going to go just start a new one. And so this is the new thing that Machen starts in 1929. It's Westminster Theological Seminary, and this is the uh, founding faculty. Uh, this is a picture from I think 1932. But this is the founding faculty of Westminster Seminary. Um, You'll see there in the front and center is, uh, is Machen. Um, if you start on the bottom from the guys who are, uh, who are sitting down, on the left is Ned Stonehouse. He's uh, a professor of New Testament, and he's going to go on to be uh, Machen's biographer. He writes kind of the classic biography of Machen. It's a big one. Uh, I think we've got it in the library if you're interested in that. Um, Oswald Alice, Old Testament professor, Machen, professor of Greek and New Testament. And then Paul Woolley, who is a church history professor, 
And then there at the end, sitting down on the right, is Cornelius Van Til, professor of apologetics. And standing on the right is Alan McRae, uh, Old Testament professor. And then on the left is John Murray, a New Testament professor and also systematic theologian. Um, Murray has a really interesting story. He's a young uh, Scotsman. He's blind in one eye from serving in the war. And Machen recognized him early on at Princeton as this incredible mind uh, and really powerful defender of the faith. They formed a really strong friendship. And it's interesting. I mean, Machen was very much an elite. Uh, uh, John Murray was a blue-collar guy, if that, from uh, Scotland. And they really form a strong friendship and mentorship. Um, and, and Murray's going to be very important uh, a little bit later. But notice, uh, notice the youth of this staff. I mean, Machen and, uh, and Oswald Alice are 51, but everybody else is late 20s, early 30s, uh, mid-30s uh, on this staff. And so Machen, at his, uh, in his uh, inaugural address at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, you can tell how he feels about everything. He says, though Princeton Seminary is dead, the noble tradition of Princeton Seminary is alive. And that's what he viewed, that's what this, uh, the faculty at Westminster viewed is what they were doing. They were carrying on the tradition of Princeton, which meant the clear teaching of the scriptures, uh, educating students who were going to be pastors, preachers, teachers in the original languages, in the scriptures, in systematic theology, uh, and, and in holiness and piety. They wanted to be uh, men who were good examples for these young pastors. Uh, so they, they view that the old Princeton Seminary was still alive in Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, well, Machen continues to write and publish, and in, in 1930 he publishes The Virgin Birth of Christ, which at the time is the scholarly treatment on this issue of Jesus uh, and, and what the scriptures mean by Jesus being born of a virgin. Uh, the, the following year is a tough year for Machen, and one of those reasons is that it's that year that his mother dies. On October 13th, uh, it's a picture of her grave. Uh, Machen, it's, it's hard to understate the importance that uh, Machen's mother played in his life. And Parks did a really wonderful job last week uh, uh, explaining this. But uh, an interesting thing about his mother that she kept a scrapbook, a separate scrapbook for all of Machen's books, each one of Machen's books that he wrote, and then also each one of his controversies that he was involved with. So she was working on uh, she, she was working on a scrapbook about the the virgin birth of Christ uh, when she passed away, and uh, one of the so every newspaper clipping that she that she found of her son she would put in a scrapbook, and there were a lot of them. One of the things she wrote to her son at one point was, "You're going to make a lot of enemies," but she said that I think with a lot of pride, uh, a, a lot of a lot of pleasure in his ministry because she saw that what he was doing was he was fighting the good fight of the faith. He was clearly proclaiming the gospel as it's delivered to us. And so she was a wonderful supporter of Machen. Uh, she went to be with the Lord in 1931. Um, Machen's next battle, and this is really his last big battle uh, in the Presbyterian church, and it's over, interestingly, the subject of missions. So 
there's a book that's printed called Rethinking Missions, A Layman's Inquiry After 100 Years. And it's a group of laymen from several different denominations. It's not just the, the, the big Presbyterian church, um, but the Presbyterian church uh, endorses and supports this. And uh, Stephen Nichols, he says that Rethinking Missions is a quite early treasure trove of pluralistic thought. The report advocated a paradigm, a paradigm shift in missions premised on the notion that Christianity is not the exclusively true religion. And so what they were doing was they were asking the question, how do we do missions work? Uh, what does it look like for us to go and evangelize? Uh, and, and they were speaking uh, specifically of the East, the Far East, thinking of uh, lands like China. Um, Pearl Buck was a missionary uh, at the time to China. Uh, who uh, wrote rave reviews of this book. She says, this says exactly what I'm thinking. Uh, Pearl Buck denied the gospel. And essentially her mission work was humanitarian work. Uh, she thought that uh, what you were called to do as a missionary was to go and help people out. And there may be some helpful principles that you can bring from Christianity, but there's also a lot of helpful things that uh, these people have in their pagan religion. And maybe the answer is somewhere in the mixture of Christianity and paganism. It's pluralism. It's syncretism. It's watering down Christianity and mixing it with idolatry. The very thing that we're warned against doing in the scriptures. Um, Stephen Nichols says about this, consequently, in, in this thinking that, that's espoused in this book, mission work should be more syncretistic eschewing imperialistic attitudes about Christianity and proselytizing in favor of more accommodating attitudes toward other religions. I don't know if you've ever heard this idea in missions, but the idea that uh, Christians, if you're proclaiming the gospel to people in other cultures, that's really imperialism. It's like you're trying to colonize people. Uh, you're trying to make them give up their way of life, and you're enforcing Christianity on them. And so uh, the people were worried about that kind of thing, and so they, they, uh, they, they wrote this book, Rethinking Missions, advocating uh, these ideas that we would lay aside a clear proclamation of the gospel uh, for this uh, mixture of popular worldly ideas. And so, again, what's Machen going to do when he sees that because really the Presbyterian church was saying, yeah, this is what our missions, uh, th this is what our missions emphasis is going to be like. Uh, we're, we're going to move more toward the direction of rethinking missions. And so you can't cancel Machen. He's going to start his own missions agency. That's what he does. Uh, in 1933, he organizes the Independent Board for Foreign Missions. This does not go well. Uh, the missions board goes well, but it's not received well at all by the Presbyterian Church. So in 1935, the General Assembly declares Machen guilty of violating his ordination vows. They say by him starting, and, and other ministers starting this new missions organization, that he is violating his vows to maintain the purity and the peace of the church. Machen appeals that decision, says that he hasn't done anything wrong by doing this. And in 1936, He's officially defrocked as a minister. They, he loses his ordination credentials. They say, Machen, you are no longer fit to be a minister of the gospel in the Presbyterian church. You think about the injustice of that. 
that we've talked about all of these people who deny the the, the basics of the gospel. These are mem- these are ministers who are fit who are uh, who are in good standing in the Presbyterian Church, and yet Machen uh, is not fit to be a minister in the Presbyterian Church in their view. Uh, they want to kick him out for this, and so once again, you can't cancel Machen. So what's he going to do in June 1936? It's a fast turnaround. He saw this coming. Machen organizes the Presbyterian Church of America, as it's called at the time. We're the Presbyterian Church in America. It's our denomination. He organizes the Presbyterian Church of America in 1939. That's going to change its name to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC. Machen's elected moderator for the first General Assembly. Uh, He serves for two General Assemblies because they have two that first year. But he's only going to serve in that role for six months because in the winter of that year, he's going to go up to North Dakota. And there are some churches that are that are seeking to join the OPC that are really struggling in a lot of ways. And so he's going to go and preach to them. He's already worn down, not feeling well by the time that he goes. Um, and on New Year's Day, 1937, Machen is going to, on this trip, succumb to pneumonia be hospitalized, and he's going to die on January 1st, 1937. Uh, this apparently is uh, the, the last church that he preached in. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's sudden, it's a, it's a shock, it's surprising uh, to uh, his, his fellow ministers of the newly organized denomination and to uh, the, the, the faculty at the seminary. Uh, this is Machen's grave. He's uh, buried next to his mother, fittingly, uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. And on the right side of his grave is, uh, is, is a Greek inscription that reads, Faithful unto death. Something really interesting about Machen, uh, there in, uh, at the very end on his deathbed, one of the things that he did was he sent a final telegraph to, you remember, John Murray. The, the young Scotsman uh, who he formed such a strong bond with. And this is his last telegraph to him. I'm so thankful for active obedience of Christ. It should be the. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Sinclair Ferguson, he says that if he were, if he were making a movie about Machen's life, that this would be the opening scene. It would be John Murray coming in and picking up this telegram uh, that he got from Machen. And this isn't a text, this isn't a tweet. So it's not that he sent it and it's immediately received as soon as he sent it. When John Murray picks up this telegram, Machen's already dead. But these are his last words that he wants to say to his dear friend, his dear little brother in the faith, John Murray. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. What is that all about? Okay, John Murray wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And in this book, he makes a big deal about the passive and the active obedience of Christ. Um, This is is an idea in systematic theology that's very helpful. And Machen was speaking about this idea in these churches that he went to go encourage in North Dakota. And so he spent a long time talking to John Murray, making sure he was really clear on this idea. The passive obedience of Christ is a These are two ways of looking at the obedience of Christ and what Jesus did for us, not just on the cross, but with his whole life. Passive obedience of Christ is that Jesus obeyed in all of his works throughout his life and his death. 
so that a Christian's debt is paid. And so here's the implication of that. If you only believed in the passive obedience of Christ, then what that would mean was when you became a Christian, all your previous sins would be forgiven. But then what about the sins that you commit today or tomorrow? Well, you would have to deal with those. If you only believed in the passive obedience of Christ, your sin, your past sins are forgiven, but then the rest is up to you. If you only believe in the passive obedience, then salvation would be grace plus works for you. But Christ's obedience was passive and active. Christ obeyed in all his works so that Christians are positively righteous. Passive obedience is your sins are forgiven. Active obedience are you are declared righteous by the Lord. This is the way Murray says it. Christ took care of the guilt of sin, passive obedience, and he perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. And so as a Christian, you get to say, not just I'm forgiven, but you get to say, I am righteous. The Lord looks on you and counts you as righteous because of Christ. Uh, and, and this is what Machen is rejoicing in, is that Christ is all his righteousness. His only hope of standing before the God who he is about to meet is Christ and Christ alone. And so one thing I want you to think about as we, as we wrap up here, one of the things that Machen spent his life fighting against was this watered-down, squishy Christianity that reduced Jesus to a sentiment this kind of vague feeling. On Machen's deathbed, what is Machen thinking about? He's thinking about doctrine. He's thinking about solid theology, and it's his hope in life and in death. Machen saw that whether you're on the front lines of World War I, or whether you're in a hospital bed about to face your death, you need the gospel. You need Christ. Clearly, proclaimed, taught, not mixed with all the foolishness of the world. People who are wondering about how is the, how is the church going to grow? How, how are people going to hear us? What are people going to think of us? Machen's thinking, how are you going to die? How are you going to stand before the Lord on the last day? And Machen says, Christ and Christ alone. Only in Him, only by His life, death, and resurrection do we have any hope. Machen sent that telegram, and passed to be in the very presence of the one who we worship and who we praise today. Brothers and sisters, let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you uh, so much for your servant, Machen, and uh, we pray that as we embark on the next several weeks of studying this book, uh, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, that we wouldn't see doctrine as a cold set of propositions and ideas but we would see that as we learn these things about you, as we continue to learn uh, as a church, Lord, that we are learning to see your face, that we are learning uh, more and more of who you are, that we might be in relationship with you, that we might have hope in life and in death. Oh Lord, help us now as we uh, fellowship for a few moments before uh, we enter into worshiping you, our true and living God. Lord, help us today as we seek to worship you. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.